Welcome to Movie Catch-Up, a podcast where two friends work on reducing their movie backlog. Each episode, we serve up a double-feature discussion of movies we've selected for each other to catch up on. I'm Greg. And I'm Leanne. We're hitching a ride to a bloodbath. Today, we're talking about Friday the 13th and Carrie. This is the second of three episodes in our lead-up to Halloween. But before we get into these spooky movies, we've been catching up on some other Halloween-y things recently that we've had an opinion or two on. I thought first it might be fun to talk about uh, at least the first two episodes of The Haunting of Bly Manor, which we've both seen. So spoiler alert, anyone who hasn't seen the first two episodes of Bly Manor, it is so far a show I'm thoroughly enjoying. Uh, We both loved Haunting on Hill House a lot. Mm -hmm. And I had high expectations for this, but was slightly worried from the trailers that it features dolls and children, two things I do not like in horror movies. So far, though, I've been okay with it. I really like the cast. Seeing the main character, who unfortunately didn't get it as huge a role in the original show, um, is playing a different character now, and she seems to have the most screen time, which I love. She's super fantastic. I like generally that a lot of the previous cast is in this, even though yeah. they only have sort of small roles. I'm interested in if in later episodes we're going to see more of the previous cast come in as yeah. other characters. I really like that there's more of a focus this time on um, just diversity. Like the Hill House is very white, for example, mm-hmm. whereas we have multiple characters of color with big, really fun roles in this. I love seeing the guy who plays Ravi in... um, iZombie. Yes, iZombie. He's great in that, and I really like seeing him in this, too. Uh, Cast him more things, people. I have gotten kind of a spoilery indication that there is some queer stuff that happens in later episodes, but... Oh, two episodes in, and you can tell. But sort Uh, of, like, on-screen confirmed stuff, not sort of inferred subtextual things. But I didn't like the look first into it too scene much. where Gardner Lady walks into the kitchen and just is like making eyes at our main girl. I don't know names yet, but like I was getting the energy, like I was getting the vibes. Something's happening here. They've had mad chemistry already, so I'm assuming it's them. I've heard some spoilers that there's queerness as well, but I didn't really know who or when. Mm-hmm. But I'm assuming that's what it is because that's the vibes I'm getting. Yeah, I'm really interested in everyone's backstory. The little they're really good in these shows about like just teasing out that there's so much more layers and depth here that you don't know yet. But when you do figure it out, it's all gonna make so much more sense watching it back. I watched the first two episodes on Friday night, and after I finished the second episode, I was just like, okay, I need to watch something a little bit more lighthearted to kind of change the vibe a little bit. Not because it was like super scary, but it was just like Yeah. I just needed something to sort of shift the energy (laughs) before I was heading to bed because it was like probably almost 11 o'clock. And then it was just like, yeah, I need to not have the the closing image of that episode sort of lingering lingering in my brain. I was really worried about the children being super scary. And while there's definitely some moments of that, so far they've been really good. Like the, the people, the kid actors are really talented. And. They're not just, like, evil demon spawn, at least not entirely and not yet. So I'm casually on board for children in this horror movie or TV show. The little girl in the couple of scenes where 
I think the main character's name is Danny. Yeah, that sounds great. When she's like, the little girl makes all of these like little creepy dolls. Yeah, like out of string and twigs. They probably have some proper name, but I don't know what they are. But there's one that like talismans. She calls them. Yeah, yeah, that sounds correct. But there's like one that always lives like underneath her dresser, and Danny is putting them to bed, and oh, she like picks God. it up, and the girl like sits up in bed, and she's so serious, she's like, "No, she stays there." Like, holy fuck, okay. So those yeah. are sort of like some yeah. key moments where it's just like, eh. and the brother like throws it down the the laundry chute, and it's like real creeped out, and like it, she goes down to the the basement, and it's standing up. It's just like the doll is just on the floor by itself standing up and it's, ugh, I hate dolls. Dolls are creepy. There's so many dolls in this show. So yeah. I'm taking it slow. <laughs> the fact that they're like little talismans for whatever reason makes it extra creepy. I mean, if it was like porcelain dolls and stuff like that, it would be just as bad, but yeah, but yeah, I'm definitely interested to continue watching it and see what they're going to be doing with that and where the story goes. Cause I, I think they did a really good job with the haunting of Hill house. And I think, that this second anthology series is going to do really well as well. We also watched something recently that is perhaps <laughs> not as good as Bly Manor. <laughs> uh, we watched the 2018, I believe, Truth or Dare. There's a lot of Truth or Dares movies out there, so yes. I believe this one is 18 or 19. I think 2018 sounds correct. Yeah. Uh, starring our fave Pretty Little Liar, Lucy Hale. And it was not great. I have a lot. Yeah, we both had quite a few thoughts and opinions on it. <laughs> it was a little all over the place, but I mean, there was something there I liked. But Yeah, it was definitely like strong cast, interesting premise, but I think the execution was really shaky. Primarily, I think our biggest gripe was that basically a very short premise for this movie is that these, we think they're in university question mark, uh, go on a trip to Mexico, young (laughs) young adults, um, take a trip to Mexico and they meet a guy who takes them to like this abandoned, uh, church and he gets them to play truth or dare. And then when they go back home, the game has like permeated to their real life. And if they don't do their, if they don't tell their truth or they don't do their dare, then they like die. And, one of my, I know one of my biggest gripes about this movie was that the escalation was really inconsistent. It was like one person would do, like, they would have to tell the truth about something that was fairly innocuous. And then the next one would be like, you have to kill a person. So it was yeah. like very inconsistent from person to person. And the level of escalation towards the end of the movie yeah. was like not great. So it was very weird. Well, like some of the dares in the midpoint are like, kill a person. And then towards the climax of the movie, one of the dares is have sex with the guy you're attracted to. And it's like, okay, I get that your best friend is with that guy and that's awkward, but like you all are in this truth or dare dare game at this point. And like, that just doesn't seem like a huge ask compared to shoot someone Mm -hmm. to just have a quick, you know, have a quickie with the guy you like, like that doesn't seem like the worst dare you could have gotten, but maybe I'm just jaded. Yeah, even like the sort of open ending of the movie, I have mixed feelings about because I, it like it doesn't feel like a movie that needs to have a sequel, but it definitely felt like it was open ended enough that they might yeah. be doing a sequel. So I don't know. I feel by and large, most movies 
should just kind of be a self-contained thing and they don't really need to have sequels, but... If it's organically spawned, I hate movies that set up a sequel before they even come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that always feels a little ham-fisted. Unless you're the old guard, then I'm fine with it. <laughs> and of course, in this movie, the two people that like survive all of this out of their relatively diverse friends group is like the two white girls, which is yeah. very... I know we were both tragic, like tr- just struck by the death of the adorable um, queer Asian character that was great. His and death wonderful. was like so fast and like yeah, so unnecessary. And we knew basically from the moment he was on screen that he was going to die. It was just a matter of when. Yeah, I mean, he was a double minority. Never survives a horror movie. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, you're asking too much. Well. Unless you're watching Zombies of Mass Destruction, which I don't know if it made you watch. Would yeah, have been a good pick if I not. Damn it, that would have been a good pick. <laughs> Too late now. Well, anyways, I suppose we should get into the movies we did watch this week Sounds for good, the podcast. You're going to camp blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. You'll never come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. He's a real prophet of doom, ain't he? So for my pick this week, I had you watch Friday the 13th, classic, classic slasher movie. This was released in 1980. It was directed by Sean Cunningham and written by Victor Miller. Sean Cunningham is mostly worked in the 70s and 80s uh, with some other uh, horror movies that I haven't necessarily know much of but have heard of, like a Stranger is Watching, Spring Break, and The New Kids. And Victor Miller actually is mostly just written for daytime soaps, it seems, such as, like, General Hospital and All My Children and Guiding Light. Uh, sadly, no As the World Turns, which is the best of all the American Big Soap Puffers, which I definitely did not watch a lot of. And recently he did Rock, Paper, Scissors, which looks like another return to horror for him. Famously seems to not be associated with a lot of the other Friday the 13th because he wasn't happy with them switching up the killer between the movies and going a different direction because this movie we'll talk about it is very different than every other movie in the Friday the 13th series. Mm-hmm. Very different. Uh, so this movie stars a whole slew of people as camp counselors, most of which who uh, didn't do a lot of acting after this, uh, though notably you've got Kevin Bacon here as Jack. And uh, Mark Nelson, who plays Ned, has shown up in quite a few things I'm familiar with as well, such as an episode of Ed, which I love. A show that remarkably seems to come up in our episodes quite a lot. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I also really enjoyed Adrian King as our final girl, Alice. I thought she did a great job. She seems to have made quite a career for herself in other horror movies and other Friday the 13th-related projects, notably doing the voice for a lot of these things, or voiceover. And, of course, we have Betsy Palmer, who plays Mrs. Voorhees, iconic character. So on the tomato meter, this got a 64% critic and a 61% audience, which it's probably about what I That feels correct. Yeah, that doesn't feel too far off, at least. So the tagline for this uh, is, you'll wish it were only a nightmare, which seems like it would be a Nightmare on Elm Street tagline. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a great tagline for this movie. There's a lot of taglines for this movie. That's the one that popped up for me, and the rest were equally bad. 
so the premise of this is Camp Crystal Lake is a summer camp with a murky past, but its new owner seeks to reopen. He invites a group of young, rowdy camp counselors to help fix it up, but the camp's past lurks over and under Crystal Lake. So I picked this movie for you when we decided to do a double feature of kind of classic era horror from like 70s, 80s. And this seemed like a good fit as it was kind of really big in bringing the slasher genre to the main front of horror for a while there, uh, along with things like Halloween, of course, which was also a potential option. But I decided to go with this one because it's very iconic. Um, I completely forgot Kevin Bacon was in this, but that's a great plus as well. And I was curious if you knew the twist on this going in and if you would expect, like most people who've seen this for the first time, uh, when's the guy in the hockey mask show up? Which uh, a lot of people just don't know the ending of this movie still. And it's always a fun twist for people who haven't seen it and only know of the many, many sequels like Freddy vs. Jason and things like that. So I'm curious if you knew that. Yeah, I was aware of the twist going into this. I kind of forgot about it. Was it because of the movie Scream? Um... I don't think so. I mean, I think just because Friday the 13th is just so significantly part of pop culture that it's just kind of something that I have become aware of through other things. I probably have, like, watched video essays on YouTube or watched other shows or read other things yeah. that had that spoiled for me. I also realized before I watched this movie that I have actually seen the 2009 remake of this movie with Jared Padalecki, but I don't remember anything about it. So it didn't really impact uh, my viewing of this. And I don't think it would have made a difference because they're very different. Totally. Yeah. I have not seen that one. But in terms of, yeah, who the actual villain was in this, I was, I was aware. Yeah. I was curious if you'd know that because me personally, when I watched this uh, maybe five years ago or something, I kept expecting Jason to show up or that it would be Jason the whole time, et cetera, et cetera. Just because every other movie that's called Friday the 13th has the guy in the hockey mask. Interestingly enough, I don't think it's still the third movie that he actually has that. Even in the second movie, he wears like a, I think a sack over his head the whole time. So it's not until Mm. the later movies that that iconic hockey stick mask, I think he uses the hockey stick at some point. He's got like a machete or something. That's right. I'm thinking of something else. Uh, I'm thinking of the guy from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Anyways, <laughs> okay. there's the character that Stephen Amell plays, and he's like a famous Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles character. And I think he has like a hockey mask, oh, God, a hockey mask, know. and a hockey stick, and he's like a vigilante or something. Anyways, there's that iconic look that everyone knows, like the Freddy vs. Jason thing, and that's all I knew. I won't lie, when I was watching this movie, I was kind of expecting Jason to show up. And then when it was Mrs. Voorhees at the end, I was like, oh, right, that's the villain in this movie. So I wasn't like, oh, shit, it's his mom. It was just like, oh, right, the the first movie is different than the rest. And I remembered after that. And for me, the one time I would have picked up on that, apart from like watching a video essay or something, or hearing other people spoiler talk about it, was the scream. Um, I think it's the first scream when Drew Barrymore's on the phone with Ghostface and Ghostface asks if do you like scary movies and uh, is like quizzing her on scary movies where he's going to kill her boyfriend in the backyard. And she has to name all these killers from these movies he's naming off. And when he goes Friday the 13th, she goes, Jason, it's Jason, but it's actually Mrs. Voorhees. And she got it wrong. And that I guess would probably be the one time I would have heard of this before because I'd seen Scream quite a few times before this, but it didn't really click. 
So that aside, that big part I want to talk about right away, just expectation-wise, um, what were your general thoughts on this movie? And then we can get into what worked for you. I am kind of of two minds about this movie. Getting sort of going into what worked, sort of like right from the beginning, I was like, oh, this movie doesn't waste any time getting to the action. But then, like, basically after that point, I was like, this movie just feels like a series of things that happen. Yeah. And then it concludes. So I I honestly felt like I was a little bit bored through a lot of it while I was, like, waiting for things to happen. And it's not like between the different deaths of all of these camp counselors, there was, like, a lot of tension that was being built. It was just like this couple is like having sex and these teenagers are playing strip monopoly. And like all of these things are sort of happening independently. And then like somebody dies for like some stupid fucking reason. So it was just like this happens and then this happens. And like, there's only a handful of places I felt like there was any like building of tension or anticipation of something happening. And otherwise it was just like, okay, like when are we going to move this along? Yeah. So I did, I mean, I didn't hate it, but it like, I didn't love it. Oh, for sure. I I feel very similarly um, on a lot of cases. I mean, we can get to some of the specifics, obviously, later on. So was there anything particularly that you did feel felt like worked for this or you did like? Um, I really liked Annie, who's kind of the first character we meet in the present day. Um, she's one of the camp counselors. Well, she's supposed to be the camp cook, and she's on her way to Camp Crystal Lake, and she stops by in the nearby town trying to get directions. And she's got, like, this weird, upbeat personality, and, like, she's very optimistic about, like, what the summer's going to be like. And everybody's like, oh, camp blood, you shouldn't go there. You need to, like, go home. And she's like, you're probably just overreacting. Yeah. And then I was, I was like, wow, I like her. And then, like, 10 minutes into the movie, she dies. So that was short-lived, but she was a good character. And I thought it was a good, like, setup for the camp. Although, like, everyone was really cagey kind of about what happened. It was just like, everybody who goes there dies. But, like, there's not really a lot of explanation about what that entails. I felt the same way about Annie. I wrote down uh, in another movie or another setting, I felt like she could have been a really good, like, final girl. Like, she could have been like a really good character to take us through the whole movie and be the one that survives in the end, uh, in this case, instead of Alice. Like I could have seen that because she, she was so peppy and upbeat and it was, I thought a really effective way to start the movie. And for me, the movie starts pretty strong with all that stuff. Like the building of kind of atmosphere over this camp, even the very first scene where like, uh, they're all like singing Kumbaya and then the two teenagers walk off and have sex and get murdered and then jumping into the present day, all the stuff with Annie, Annie getting murdered. Like it had a pretty good flow for the first bit for me. Uh, obviously it didn't keep mm-hmm. that up necessarily. I felt like it did come back towards the end, but yeah, we'll talk about the pacing, but I, I really liked Annie. I liked yeah. a lot of the camp counselors actually. Like, like I said it before, but I really like Alice as our final girl in this. I thought, she was really interesting character, even though we don't get to know much about any of the camp counselors specifically. Uh, something just drew me to her about how she was being portrayed, how she was reacting to everything around her. She seemed a little bit more naive than some of the other camp counselors, had a little more mystery to her with her and the, I think it's Steve. 
the guy running the camp who's kind of coming on to her in a weird way, even though he's much older and she seems kind of conflicted by it and kind of wants to maybe leave next week to deal with other things going on in her she life. She wants to leave like ASAP, yeah. but he convinces her to yeah. stay. And clearly there's other things going on in her life. I really liked her. And just popping back quickly to Annie, uh, one thing she had a bunch of like really great one-liners. Um, I made a note of one um, where she was in the truck with the guy from the restaurant that she stops at, where she's like going on about like how excited she is about the summer and you know how much she really likes children. And she says, I hate when they call them kids. It sounds like little goats because small goats are called yeah. kids. But I was just like, okay. Uh, and I laughed because it was just such a weird line, but it says quite a lot about sort of like, her personality. Yeah. So I, I was a little bit disappointed that we weren't able to get more from her. It's so funny when she's hitchhiking towards the, the lake for the second leg and she just hops in this Jeep. There's like no conversation yeah. between her and the driver. When she gets in, she just gets in and it's just like, the, this movie is clearly from another time because oh, yeah. like people obviously wouldn't be quite that cavalier about who they would be getting into cars with nowadays but even that first trucker guy like in 2020 if she got in a car with a guy like that you'd be expecting him to be the killer like something bad to be happening there yeah i mean i made a note i was like wow he really whole palmed her ass as he helped her into his truck like it was you know again it was like this movie is clearly from yeah, a different time. We can say the same thing just, about yeah. Carrie. We'll probably talk about that. <laughs> oh, I mean, I will probably say the same thing about exactly. Carrie too. I really thought it was also kind of funny that when he, the during her first leg with that trucker guy, drops her off right in front of this massive graveyard, and it's like prominently featured in the screen the whole time, and it's like he's dropping her off to her death, <laughs> literally. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but that is great foreshadowing for what's going to yeah, happen to her. There's some really good visual stuff in this movie. Um, that's probably my number one, yeah. is all the the practical effects. I don't know if you want to talk about that now, but... Uh, I wanted to just talk quickly a little bit about the camera framing, because a lot of the shots like are obviously from the killer's yeah. point of view, so you get, like... You get POV shots from, like, the killer's perspective, but also just, like, a lot of the general shots had kind of, like, a voyeuristic feel to them. Like, you're also watching these camp counselors, like, at the lake and, like, doing whatever. So even though it's just sort of, like, a straight scene where, like, you're not supposed to be seeing it from somebody else's perspective, you are still kind of, like, part of the movie in a way. So I thought that was kind of um, an interesting. And I loved that we never really get to see the killer. We never get a sense of who people are looking at until the very end of the movie yeah. when, you know, Mrs. Voorhees appears and all is revealed. Well, especially how every time someone sees the killer, there are different reactions to seeing the killer. So we're in the killer's point of view. We don't see what the killer looks like at all. And then someone who sees the killer isn't afraid. They're like, oh, I didn't know you were here. I think the camp counselor says like, oh, what are you doing out here in the rain? Or Annie jumps in the killer's car and just greets them as a friendly person. And, like, everyone, clearly this killer doesn't look like a killer. And that's, we pick up on little bits of that here and there. Yeah, when Steve comes, finally makes it back to camp uh, and he sees the killer, who we don't see because there's a bright light obscuring them, uh, he greets them with obvious familiarity before he's immediately stabbed to death. Yeah, I, I agree that the different interactions with, uh, the killer throughout definitely help obscure 
who to expect when we finally get to that part of the movie. I also thought it was um, an interesting parallel to uh, Albert Hitchcock's Psycho, sort of in an inverse way, where Mrs. Voorhees is like channeling her dead son, compelling her to kill, where in Psycho, I forget what the main character's name is, unfortunately, but he's got like his mom's corpse is like in the main house, and he basically is like channeling her, but not really when he's like killing guests in the motel. And also, of course, going back to Scream, Spoilers if you haven't seen any of the Scream movies. In the second movie, it's uh, Skeet Eldritch's character's mom. I forget what his name is. Sid? No, that's the main character's name is Sid. Sidney. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the, her... I just watched them all again. I should know. Billy. Billy, Billy Loomis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mrs. Yeah. Loomis. Yeah. So in the second Scream movie, it's Billy's mom who is yeah. the killer in that one. So Which is a uh, big throwback to this movie, obviously, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a parallel. So just like a fun, interesting thing. And I wonder, I'm wondering if the sort of inverse parallel to Psycho was intentional. I I suppose it probably was. We even get the noise, the the stabbing, shink, 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 or whatever that noise is, right? Like that noise is used a lot. Um, The noise is in this movie, actually. Like the sound mixing is really good, I thought. The iconic sound in this Mm -hmm. movie is the shh, shh, shh. Or whatever. Like, I can't do it super well, but, like... Yeah, there's, like, a sort of, like, a whispering thing that happens throughout. It's, like, every time you're in the killer's point of view and the killer sees someone and they don't see the killer, you get that, like, same sound cue. And it just is really creepy and raises tension really well. They do borrow a lot of noises I'm familiar with, like, that psycho stabbing um, noise is used a lot. yeah. That mo- that sound got used yeah. a lot in Carrie yeah. every time that she uses her power, which, of course, we'll talk about in a little bit. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely become sort of like a iconic horror-related noise to kind of indicate that Am something I, is happening or that we should expect something to be happening. Was it used in this or was it Carrie I'm thinking of or was it both? Now I'm doubting myself. Um, it's possible that it was used briefly in Friday Maybe the 13th. Maybe I'm actually just thinking of Carrie. But I think primarily, yeah, it was used a lot in Carrie. Yeah, it was used a lot in Carrie. I, I remember that. Yeah, I think I think sort of like the low whisper, like, like thing that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff was yeah. much more consistent. Yeah, that's the iconic Friday the 13th one. Another little fun parallel that I thought might have been referencing in Cabin in the Woods. Uh, the creepy old gas station guy in Cabin in the Woods reminded me a lot of Ralph from this movie, the town crazy, who's like weirdly religious and warning everyone that he was sent from God to like not go down to that crystal lake. And he's uh, this creepy old dude who like you meet on the road to the camp warning you of going there. And it just felt like that was maybe a callback uh, in Cabin in the Woods. I think it was. I had the same thought. I was like, oh, this guy's the harbinger. The harbinger. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But also, like, that's just kind of an archetype in a lot of these movies where if you're going to somewhere off the beaten path, there's always yeah. some guy, usually at a gas station, to, like, warn you about it. probably comes from this. Probably. I don't remember seeing it in anything before this. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the origin for that. I'm not a huge horror uh, expert, so I wouldn't know, but this is probably the earliest I've seen that kind of trope. That's one of the reasons I definitely wanted to watch this movie, is because there's a lot of tropes and early origins, of, especially in the slasher genre, things that come from this movie. 
the mom being the killer, even things like that, that uh, they get used a lot. So it's an interesting one to watch for sure. The few places where like the building of tension worked really well for me was, I don't know any of the camp counselors names, so I apologize. They're all interchangeable to me. But there's the one girl, Jack's girlfriend, whatever her name is, when she's in the bathroom. I think that's Brenda. Nope. Brenda is sexy monopoly yeah. girl. Marcy? Yeah, Marcy. I think Marcy. It's yeah. Mar- it's Marcy. Um, yeah, so it's when Marcy, she's first yeah. in the bathroom and, you know, she's like kind of wary of the showers and she's starting to inspect that that was like a good scene where like they built tension leading up to like her inevitable death and then also later on when marcy is getting ready for bed and then she comes to the bathroom she similarly is like kind of wary of the shower and i was kind of expecting for her to like go over and like find marcy's body that's the thing that uh, was really surprising to me is that at no time does anybody ever get to discover the corpse of their friend yeah. um, like before they get killed or something like that, which she would typically expect until, until basically the very, the very end. end. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why like the building of tension was a problem for me. Cause it was just like somebody's dead and then like somebody else is dead. And it's like, nobody knows what's going on. They're all in very isolated places in the camp throughout the whole thing until pretty much the end of the movie when Alice is like, Hey, I'm by myself. And like, what happened to yeah. Bobby or whatever his name is? I really like the tension in the scene where Jack gets it, uh, Kevin Bacon's character. Because um, Jack and Marcy sneak into a bunk during this rainstorm or whatever to have sex. And they're on the bottom bunk and it's dimly lit. And then after they finish is when uh, Marcy goes off to sneak away to the bathroom. And that's when we get the kind of pan away to see that their friend Ned is dead in the bunk above them the whole time. And it was like this slow pan up. And then we get like some thunder and lightning and it lights up this dead body on top of the bunk where they just had sex. And it's like real creepy. And it's like, Ooh. And then the whole time Jack is just laying there. And then after she leaves, there's like a splat of blood from the bunk above down. And Jack like touches it and like looks at it. And then he's going to look up and you're thinking, oh, he's going to find Ned. And then just a fucking hand comes up from under the bed of the killer, grabs him, and then an arrow gets shoved from underneath the bed through his neck. And it's so fast and just unexpected. The first time I saw it, I screamed. It was like the big scare for me at this. And this time I'm just like kind of laughed because it was great. I loved it. Yeah, that was, weirdly enough, that's not a scene that I felt like had a lot of tension for me, because it was like, he gets a drop of blood on his face, and he barely has time to respond before it's like, arrow through the neck, which is funny, it makes me think of that uh, story that I wrote for our historical fiction class in university, where I had a (laughs) character die with an arrow through the neck, and everybody was like, all up in arms with me about killing my character that way, but here we are! Love it. I think it was just the tension before that of like knowing that that was above them and them not knowing and wondering when they're going to find out. And then that tension that was just starting to build being completely undercut, I guess that that worked for me, the undercutting of that, by just like him getting brutally murdered. Yeah. I didn't even realize that they were in the same cabin that Ned went inside and we know that he died in until basically. I thought that was kind of shown like, you get that same shot of the cabin in the distance that Ned ran into as they're going to run into it after. 
Yeah, maybe I yeah. just didn't make the connection on that. Um, speaking of the deaths, I for me personally, the practical effects in this movie, I really like them, and I think they hold up incredibly well for a movie made in 1980, especially in the higher quality I watched this. Like, Marcy getting that axe to the face, Jack getting the arrow through the neck. A lot of these, like, even Annie at the beginning having her thra- uh, throat slit open, like, the effects in them looked good. And they were, like, kind of chilling a little bit. I don't know. I thought it was really well done. Yeah, I didn't have any problem with any of the the effects at all. I just really like seeing practical effects done and done well, especially in horror movies where about 10 years after this movie came out, it was just done. Like you only get bad CGI and over the top, just like gushing blood and things that like don't work so well for me, especially just that era of bad CGI where something like this really does still hold up for me with like the amount of work going into like, even just that, arrow through the neck stunt like looked really good and you could just tell like that would have taken a lot of work to get looking good Mm -hmm. i just really appreciated the craftsmanship of good practical effects and makes me wish we had uh good practical effects in movies again there are definitely people out there who do them and do them well and when they are included in the movie like you can definitely notice the difference this had like a uh 550 thousand dollar budget like half a mil budget which shows at times but i think they did a really good job with half a mil budget in this movie for sure mm-hmm. i don't think any of my problems came down to the filming or the the effects or any of the budgetary stuff it was literally just down to basically pacing i mean yeah i'm the same i guess the only thing i would want to touch on before we move on is the final scene for me the place the tension ramps up and and starts to work really well is when everyone is dead except for Alice and Bill. <laughs> I don't remember. Some of the other camp counselors, like you said, kind of blur together. The not Ned and not Jack. So it must be Bill, I assume. The other counselor that is tre- checking on the generator. And I believe they both find a dead body. So they're both aware of what's happening. But from that point on, the tension really ramped up well for me. Them running back and forth finding these bodies, they're finding body after body, and then Alice is basically just running for her life at that point, which is when, uh, like, a body, I think, is thrown through the window at her. She freaks out, sees a car outside, runs outside to the car for help, and it's Mrs. Voorhees, and we're finally introduced to our killer, which is pretty obvious right away that it's her, but Alice obviously doesn't know that. And just the ramping of tension and this whole speech that Mrs. Voorhees gives where she slowly starts to go from kind old lady to unraveled completely. Like you said, she's talking to herself, channeling her dead son, Jason. Uh, She gives us the whole origin of Jason dying in the lake and the camp counselors didn't pay attention to her son drowning in the lake. So she just had to kill them to make sure that nothing would ever happen to another kid like it happened to Jason. And and at that point in the movie for that last, I would say like 20, 30 minutes. I'm not sure how long that runtime is. I was super engrossed in all of that stuff and it worked really well for me. We'll talk about it more when we talk about Carrie, but I think it's interesting that both of these movies involve like the end scene is a female character waking up from like a screaming nightmare. Yeah. I wasn't sure if Alice 
had actually been pulled out of the boat by somebody in the water or if she had been dreaming that or not but she seemed pretty insistent that there was somebody so it wasn't clear to me and i thought that ambiguity worked really well in terms of setting up the rest of the franchise yeah and i really like mrs Voorhees as a killer i think uh betsy palmer does such a good job playing this dolores umbridge level unhinged crazy older woman that just worked so well for me seeing like having the killer in this movie be like this older woman with like is like a very little permed hairdo and her like periwinkle knit sweater just chasing after alice screaming to herself like kill her mommy kill her with a knife like it was bonkers insane and i loved it like the whole like kill her mommy kill her don't let her get away mommy don't let her live i won't jason i won't it's just (laughs) like it was so good I loved every minute of that whole thing. Just this long extended chase scene where Alice like keeps knocking out Mrs. Voorhees and running away. And Mrs. Voorhees gets back up and chases her. And she knocks her out again. And the whole time I'm just screaming at the screen, Alice, just stab her. She's on the floor unconscious. Don't run away. Stab her. <laughs> the scene where Alice is like in um, the pantry or something in the kitchen. And yeah. then she hits Mrs. Voorhees with like the cast iron pan. Yeah. That was definitely like a, here's your opportunity to like, actually murder her but i i mean i guess that speaks a lot to alice that she's like just trying to preserve herself and get out alive and not really worry too much about whether or not this woman is dead even though i mean a hit to the head like that would probably cause some pretty serious neurological damage but this is a horror movie so like let's not worry about the science hard too much i think it's also interesting we both picked movies with very villainous campy mother characters in it that I think both did such good jobs playing their roles, which we'll get to in Carrie. Yes. Definitely a lot of parallels here. I also wrote down that the Betsy Palmer looks a lot like Carol Channing in this. And now all I can imagine is Carol Channing in this role and how hilariously amazing it would be to see Carol Channing running around with a knife, trying to kill people. And now I want it. That's great. Raspberries. Oh, that'd be great. Well, let's move on to some of the things that didn't work so well for you. So I know we've talked about the pacing a lot. That's definitely one thing. Well, it won't come as any surprise to anybody who's listened to any of our previous episodes that I have a criticism about the number of people at this camp. 10 staff for 50 campers is like not enough. Like even in a daycare in current times, you know, it's supposed to be like one person for every four kids. So like, I don't know, maybe 10 staff is enough, but it just like didn't seem like very many. I'm trying to think back to how many camp counselors there were when I went to camp. And I would say I went to camp of roughly 50 to 75 people. And I would say that there was probably about a dozen supervisor counselor types, roughly. I don't think it's super off. I think there's usually like at least half the number of campers to camp staff. That seems like a lot of camp staff. Like if you're... 25 camp staff for 50 kids? Yeah. I haven't been to a camp in any recent year. This seems somewhat normal to me going to camp. Like We didn't have a lot of counselors running around managing all of us. But I mean, even if you just like looked at the size of the camp that they were at, like only having 10 people there seemed like not very many. Like it was quite a yeah. big camp space. So I mean, like to have one person in a kitchen by themselves for that many people like you could have the main thing that that came across to me was the 
the lack of more than one cook for that many people seemed weird to me. And like, you probably may, you may not have more than one person like in a cabin with campers, but like for say the archery range, you probably want at least a couple of people there. You probably want somebody who's able to like do medical stuff. It's the eighties. We don't need, we don't need people to watch out for kids in the eighties. <laughs> I know, I'm definitely <laughs> looking at it through yeah. too modern of a lens, but it's just like, I, I agree. as soon as they said, oh yeah, there's going to be 10 counselors and 50 kids, and I was like, that doesn't seem like enough. It wasn't a deal breaker for yeah. me or anything, but it was just sort of like, in the back of my mind, I was like, that seems unbalanced for some reason. It just being Steve as the adult adult seemed weird for me. Like, usually it'd be like, okay, you have 10 counselors, but like, you've got to have like two to four, like actual physical adults here as well, right? Like Steve's not even at the camp the entire movie. <laughs> Although I guess kids aren't either. Yeah. But still. <laughs> but I mean, like if you're trying to get the camp ready to go and he's just like, I'm just going to trust these teenagers who are clearly only concerned about fucking each yeah. other. Like it's fine. They'll get it all done. Whatever. One of our counselors isn't even here yet, but I'm sure she'll arrive eventually. <laughs> shrug. Like oh. yeah. no one seemed like wildly concerned about Annie at all. But in the long run, it doesn't really matter Definitely too much. Definitely a movie that if people had cell phones, that none of this would happen. Because, like, oh, I didn't get a response from Annie. Maybe she's dead. Let's call the police. Like, <laughs> I mean, considering where the camp is, I feel like probably it wouldn't maybe have good cell reception. And that would oh, be an okay true. way to, like, yeah. make it feasible. One thing yeah, that sure. kind of bugged me was that whenever people were, like, faced with a killer and were, like, clearly about to be murdered... Nobody did anything to defend themselves. They just like stood there. Like, yeah. I mean, even Annie's death, you know, like she's injured because she jumps out of this speeding car just off the side of the road into a ditch. She's twisted her ankle or something. Like, okay, fine. But then she's like in front of a tree and like she's clearly about to be, I don't know, whatever. And then all of a sudden, like her throat gets slashed. And like people just like don't do anything. Even Marcy in the bathroom, like she gets axed in the face and she doesn't do anything she doesn't like rush this person like yeah. nobody does anything I, to defend themselves at all which would have at least made the scenes where people died a little bit more interesting i think a lot of that comes down to the way they chose to frame the shots with the killer point of view they couldn't do it with a lot of like high action they needed it to be like one still framed shot especially for the blood effects and everything to really get those effects good. I think it kind of like Marcy getting axed to the head. She couldn't be running or trying to defend herself to like swap in, like whatever they had to do to make that effect work. Yeah. I think that's probably largely the reason. Cause as soon as Alice and Mrs. Voorhees are on the same shot together and we're not in point of view, like Alice fights back the whole time. Yeah. But I mean, even just like putting your hands up to protect your face or to like dodge or something, you know, it's like eventually yeah. like all of these sort of things are choreographed for movies so it's like if you know that like you're gonna do this and then you're gonna do this and then eventually you're gonna get an axe to the face it's just like we don't you can still choreograph that in such a way that we don't see who the killer is but i just think it would be hard for them to have marcy get axed for the face if she's like got her hands up to like do that effect really well, well stuff yeah, like that. I, yeah i know i know that but it's just like probably if she had her hands up then like she's not it just adds a little bit of extra and then eventually like her hands come down and she gets the axe at the face you know what i mean it's just like adding something yeah. it's probably because i'm coming at this from you know movies where you can do a lot more because of editing it just yeah. felt like they could have done a couple of things to like pretend that they were defending themselves i don't know i felt 
the same way in specific shots, Annie and Marcy being the big ones. I didn't feel so much with some of the ones that, like, seem to come on real quick out of nowhere. Like Steve, stuff like that, where he's like, oh, hey, oh, I'm dead. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. And then several of them happened off screen as well. Yeah, but, yeah. It was just a minor thing for me. Is, you know, there yeah. were certain places where I was like, these people could have done a little bit of something to, like, defend themselves. My biggest complaint with this movie, which will not be surprising to anyone that knows me, is that I was very horrified at the idea of them playing strip monopoly it's chilling to my core that out of every game you would choose to turn into a strip poker-esque version to pick monopoly it is so slow it is so boring and it is so unsexy like who's gonna get titillated playing sexy monopoly it's gonna take 48 hours to get naked at this rate (laughs) like you're gonna catch a cold and die also it seemed like they were still using the money. And then like, if you landed on somebody's property, that's how you paid the rent for that. And it would have made more sense. And it would have made the game move a lot faster. No one's going to go bankrupt. (laughs) For sure. But yeah, it would have made the game go a lot faster. If like, in order to buy a property, especially like a more expensive piece of property, if you had to sacrifice a piece of clothing to do that, because you're more likely to buy and then still like pay rent as normal, but in order to buy property, more sense to just not play Monopoly. <laughs> I mean, that's an alternative as well. I'm sure somebody had a deck of uh, cards. They could have just played strip poker. Well, the worst part about the whole thing is that when Brenda uh, starts the game off, she rolls her dice and she goes, oh, double sixes, I get to move twice. And you just, like, in camera, she rolled a two and a one. It's very clear she rolled a two and a one and just goes, oh, double sixes. <laughs> And they just didn't decide to keep filming it until she got double sixes or, like, cut away and then look back and someone's just put the two sixes up. I didn't even notice. That's so like, funny. what? Actually, it's, yeah. She rolls the dice and rolls a two and a one and goes, I got double sixes. And everyone's like, oh, she's cheating. Like, yeah, because she just rolled a two and a one instead of she rolled double sixes. She didn't. <laughs> like, that's sloppy. It, it really brought me out of the movie. <laughs> The things that ruin scenes for you. Big problem with it. I hate stuff like that. It's like just like when people are talking on a phone and it's clearly not on or like they're stuff like that. Like, like just take the effort to like make the actual phone call or to set the dice up. So they actually yeah. roll sixes, little things, loaded dice are a thing. Yes. Loaded dice. I get you don't have a budget, but like just do a close up of her face and go, Oh, I rolled sixes and look back down. Oh wow. Look, it's sixes. <laughs> I don't understand why everybody was like sleeping in separate cabins. It's like you should all be for safety reasons be sleeping together in or at least reasonably nearby. I wouldn't want to be by myself in a cabin like that on this huge ass camp in the dark. Like for sexy reasons. I mean, like okay, fine. Like if you want to go and have sex, then sure, go find somewhere quiet. But like for mm. actual sleep purposes, like I would want to have at least. A couple of people in the same cabin with me for safety purposes, but maybe that's just me. It wasn't like a big deal, but it was just like, you guys would be less likely to get picked off one by one if maybe like you weren't all in vastly different places on the camp at all times. For me, the main thing here that doesn't work, which we've touched on briefly at the very beginning, is just that it's slow. The pace is not great for a slasher movie. 
because I feel like in a slasher movie like this, you need to be doing one of two things. You need to be ramping up the tension or letting us know more about the characters so that when the characters get killed, we care about them. This is what Scream does so well. Scream has so many good scenes that just set up the characters, their goals, their motivations, their personalities, their lives, so that we really get wrapped up in them. And in this movie, apart from Annie and Alice that we've kind of touched on, I don't really know or care about anyone that's dying. And that's a little bit of a problem in a movie like this, which wouldn't be as much of a problem if it weren't really slow in the entire uh, like, apart from the first 20 minutes of the last half an hour, it just drags. And there's some good moments in there. I don't want to say, like, the whole middle bit's bad. Like, I like a lot of the kills. I like a lot of the camera work, the sounds, um, the atmosphere. But it really just needed to pick up. Like, I don't know. It was slow. It's not much you can say about that. Yeah, that's a, and I mean, this movie is only an hour and a half. So that's, like, a good amount yeah. of time to have a reasonable pace and make an interesting and exciting movie. But no, it was every scene between a murder was just like languishing while we were waiting for something else to happen. And then like, it wasn't telling us anything about the counselors. They were just smoking weed, getting drunk, having sex, I guess, like really. Like we didn't even really get anything about like what Steve was doing, like in town. No, nothing. Until he gets, you know, suddenly he's on his way back. And then even his conversation in the car with the police officer after his car gets stuck doesn't really do anything to move the story forward. Even early on before night falls and everybody starts dying, there's a police officer on a motorcycle who shows up and he's like, oh, we got word that like Ralph from town might be around. And they're all like, we haven't seen anybody shrug. And he was like, all right. And then like, doesn't even take an opportunity to be like, well, like, do you mind if I look around a little bit just to make sure do my job for five seconds? Because it turns out that Ralph actually is on camp. Although he's not a threat to the camp or the counselors at all. The police officer scene was weird for me because it didn't seem to serve much of a purpose. It didn't. What I thought would have been interesting. And one of my many fix it ideas for these movies we watch in this case would be, to have the police officer tell them the story about Jason or fill in more of the holes about what actually happened here. Be like, oh, you kids took this job. Do you know what actually happened here in Camp Blood? You need to stay far away, kids, from this place and actually explain maybe a bit of what happened now that they're all here. Because if we had known that Jason died and even that maybe there were superstitions of him coming back out of the lake as a zombie or something, or like that they'd set some creepy tone that maybe gave us a potential for who the killer is or what's going on. Rather than just getting the info dump at the end, I think that might have helped. Yeah, that was a big complaint we had just going back to Truth or Dare. It was like all of this stuff happened and then we had a scene where there's like a whole bunch of exposition about what happened and like how to solve the problem. And it definitely would have made a lot more sense to have a lot more of that at the front of the movie, especially because everybody was just being like so vague about like, oh, camp blood, you don't want to go there. Everybody who goes there dies. And like, it just seems like a hokey urban legend that would be really easy for anybody to be like, okay, whatever, I'm just going to ignore this because it sounds dumb. But if somebody, you know, took an opportunity to like, or multiple people like reiterated what happened and like kind of went into more detail or even revealing that like Steve's 
family owned the camp at the time that it happened, which I don't think is really revealed until the end when we meet Mrs. Voorhees as well. I think it's revealed at the beginning of the movie. I think someone mentions to Annie that like his parents used to run the camp Hmm. and now he's trying to rebuild it. Yeah, that sounds right. But I agree, like just a little bit more build up would even help ramp the tension. And like if every once in a while they're being reminded about this, it's really especially the Jason thing. I I guess they probably didn't expect this to blow up into a big thing about Jason. But the whole idea that that was only brought up at the very end, like it could have been dropped in little pieces, this whole story. I know you said that the last 30 minutes, half an hour of the movie was like really captivating for you. I found that it dragged a little bit for me, partly because like everybody else died so quickly. And then there was just like tons and tons of opportunities for Alice to die. It was like uh, Mrs. Voorhees would chase her and then she would knock her out. And then like, I think there was probably six or seven times where this happened. And I was just like, can we get to a point where like, I think it happens three times. Yeah. But it just like, it felt like it was a long time before we got to the point where like Alice is out on the lake. Like, I feel like realistically, if we cut this movie down a little bit, it probably could have been an hour, which is maybe not a movie, but based on sort of what we were given. I think you could have replaced some of the stuff you cut with maybe getting to know the campers a bit more, a little more set up about the camp. Like you could have kept it an hour and a half and just cut a lot of these meandering scenes and put in new scenes that actually do one of the things a slash movie should do. Yeah, if you filled out the story better, for sure. But if you just cut down sort of like the existing yeah. movie so that there wasn't so much meandering between everything, like it probably would have been like an hour be long. Short. Yeah. Yeah. I could I could have cut like one or two of the, the elements at the end with Mrs. Voorhees. I think it was just such a, a nice change of pace for me to see to like from all these weird lingering point of view shots to now all of a sudden like more fast paced action seeing the killer, seeing Alice, the struggle, just Miss Forky's being completely crazy. But I, I probably agree that it kind of went on too long. I think by the the time she was hiding in the pantry at the end, I was kind of like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I will say that I appreciated when Billy or whatever his name goes to look for Brenda, that Alice asks if she can go with him, which is like, one of the smartest moves in the whole movie, whereas like people are going together because obviously it would make sense to not be by yourself in this fucking rainstorm in a cabin. Yeah. By like, it was just a good scene or a good moment for me because yeah, I would also ask to go with. Also, what if something happened to him, or what if something happened to him? Well, he was gone and like he needed help. You know, like go out in pairs. That's an important thing. The buddy system. I thought it was a little questionable that Steve was putting 25 grand into fixing up this camp in 1980 and how he ever expected to make that money back, especially since this is not a fancy camp for fancy rich kids. It is specifically stated to be primarily for any inner city children. Like that's a lot of money, especially in 1980 to put into fixing up a summer camp for 50 kids that summer camps were not that expensive. I went to a bunch of them. They were not, you know, 25 grand for 50 kids expensive. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's expecting that's going to last him many years, but that just seemed like a large number to me. No, I definitely was like, wow, in 1980, that's a lot of money. So 
So it's probably, I don't know what the inflation conversion is, but it definitely would be probably yeah. like fifty to $75,000 today. That's probably a low ball number conversion, but like not a small sum. And the other somewhat nitpicky thing I had down here was I thought it was quite hilarious where at the end to kill Mrs. Voorhees, Alice picks up like a dull machete and just with one half-hearted chop at her neck, completely cuts straight through the bone in one fell swoop and it just like pops her head off. It's like, yeah, that, that dull machete is probably not going to cut through bone in one half-hearted strike, but sure. So what would you give this movie? Is this a perfect as is, could use some ketchup or douse it? I think this is going to be my first douse it. <laughs> yes. It needs a lot of reworking and it is so slow. Like, there's a lot of good things about it, and it's very iconic, but it's, like, it's it's not great. It's not even really a movie I would probably go back to too much. I think, for me, honestly, this is one of the first times where I feel like I could almost go any of the three. Like, I could make an argument for, like, this being a timeless classic slasher that helped define the genre, that, like, changing almost anything about it like, it, it just is what it is, and what it is is iconic. But also, I feel like there's a lot of things that I would want to fix in this. I could see a version of this movie with a few cuts and a little bit of reworking of the pacing, even without having to redo much of it, being really good. But I could also see just dousing it, because it, it really is slow, and on a lot of levels doesn't work, apart from what we can gain from it as a defining movie in the genre. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm going to land in the middle. This uh, could use some ketchup. So my pick for you uh, for this episode was the 1976 movie Carrie, which stars Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, Amy Irving, William Catt, and John Travolta. It was directed by Brian De Palma, who's best known for the movies Dress to Kill, Scarface, The Untouchables, Mission Impossible, Snake Eyes, and The Black Dahlia. And The Phantom of Paradise. Mm. Love Brian De Palma. This movie was written by Stephen King, who wrote the book on which the movie is based. And the screenplay was written by Lawrence D. Cohen, who didn't really have a lot of other writing uh, credits of note. And this movie has a tomato meter rating of 93% critic and 77% audience. Wow. Yeah. That's shocking to me. Yeah, the difference between the, the critic and audience score was very surprising to me. This movie actually has two taglines on the poster. The first is, if you've got a taste for horror, take Carrie to the prom. And the second is, if they only knew she had the power. So I picked this movie for you because Carrie, like Friday the 13th, is a very iconic horror movie from sort of like the early years of um, horror really becoming prominent. You know, Sissy Spacek is really good as Carrie as the female lead. Uh, I thought that the story generally was very good. And it's, again, a movie that has a lot of pop culture relevance. So, you know... The ability to contextualize certain things, which I'm sure you are probably familiar with. Carrie is actually the first 
novel that Stephen King published and was originally released in 1974. And it was also the first of his books to be adapted as a feature film. Interesting. Yeah. I also made a note that this movie had a startlingly low budget of only $1.8 million, which is about twice the budget of Friday the 13th, but nonetheless is still shockingly low. Yeah. And there was also a sequel released in 1999 called Carrie the Legacy, which was about another teenage girl with telekinetic powers who had the same father as Carrie. And there have been two remakes of the actual movie. One was in 2002, starring Angela Bettis, and then again in 2013, starring Chloe Grace Moretz. So the premise of this movie is withdrawn and sensitive teen Carrie faces taunting from classmates at school and abuse from her fanatically pious mother at home. When strange occurrences start happening around Carrie, she begins to suspect that she has supernatural powers. Invited to the prom by the empathetic Tommy Ross, Carrie tries to let her guard down, but things eventually take a dark and violent turn. Yeah. Well, please see that I've got to start to try and get along with people better. What are you going on about, Carrie? I've been invited to the prom. Prom? Yeah, the senior prom. You know, everybody's going... It's that teacher that called, wasn't it? Please see that I'm not like you, Mom. I'm funny. I mean, all the kids think I'm funny. I don't want to be. I want to be normal. I want to start to try and be a whole person before it's too late for me to... So, what did you know about this movie? What were sort of like your initial impressions of it going in? Yeah, I... This is very different than what I thought it was going to be going in. I really only knew bloody prom scene like basically a lot of people who've heard of carrie know she has telekinesis she has blood takes blood poured on her at the prom and she goes crazy and kills everyone kind of thing i didn't know how this movie is not really a horror in the typical sense and it's not really about that scene very like it's very much like a character study a coming of age of this girl like it's a very coming of age movie in a very interesting way that I wasn't expecting. It dealt with a lot of subtleties and it was such like a very specific movie that I was shocked by all that stuff. Cause I did not expect that out of a Stephen King movie. I thought it was going to be much more tortured and dark and more killing and stuff. I don't know ex- exactly what I thought. This is very different than that. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. It's definitely more a movie about, like, the horrors of being a teenage girl and also, you know, the horrors of being in a very conservative religious family. Um, Those were sort of, like, the two major themes in the story. I mean, the movie opens with Carrie getting her period for the first time in the locker room at school and... I guess it's a a critique of the failure of the American education system that she, like, doesn't understand what is happening to her. And when she's trying to plead with her classmates to help her because she doesn't know what's going on, they just kind of, well, they don't kind of, they just mock her. They start throwing, like, pads and tampons at her and they're chanting, plug it up. And nobody is really doing anything to, like, calm her intense anxiety about this seemingly horrifying situation. I mean, like, if you didn't know what menstruation was and you started bleeding from a certain part of your body, you would probably be pretty anxious about it. I made a note 
that, like, I honestly can't imagine a more horrifying place to get your period for the first time in the shower at school in a f- in front of a bunch of other people. Like, that's truly horrifying to me. Well, it's like Mickey said, when she gets uh, brought to the principal's office after this, a whole traumatic event happens, and the principal goes, oh, hard to believe a girl in this day and age in high school wouldn't know some facts. And I just went, uh, Mr. School Principal, that's your job to teach. <laughs> like, maybe if we had proper sex education early on in young men and women's lives, when things start happening to them, we wouldn't have to just assume that they would find out through other people or their parents or whatever. Like, it's, I was so frustrated. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also, like, fairly common in, like, very religious families. I don't want to overgeneralize, but I do think it's pretty common for, like, discussions of like what happens with your body to kind of just not be discussed at all so when things do happen kids are like what the fuck is going on with me like nobody told me this was gonna happen and then of course when she goes home and her mom starts reading from some biblical tract about how you know eve was weak and like you know menstruation was a punishment for her being weak and like basically accusing carrie of having sex and to be perfectly honest if Having sex with somebody was the way that you got your period. It would never happen. <laughs> Periods are the worst. Um, her mother going, if she'd remained sinless, the curse of blood would have never come upon her. And it's like, uh, that's some bullshit. Uh, I grew up pretty religious, and that's nowhere in the actual Bible that women only get their periods for being sinful. It's Eve was bad, now all women bleed is like very clearly the Bible thing, and it's like... Just some women got to deal with now. Thanks, Eve, kind of thing in the Bible. But her mom, like, really made it out to be like, oh, Carrie, you must have sinned or this wouldn't have happened. Like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> yeah, the religious stuff is really interesting for me. Like I uh, mentioned before, grew up quite religious, and I definitely never had even the smallest or slightest of talks about what was going to slash what was happening to me during puberty. Obviously very different than going through puberty as a girl, but like still there's like things you want to know. And I went to a Christian school that didn't tell me those things. And I didn't learn those things from my family. Thankfully it was the age of television. And at that point, some early internet stuff that like basically is how you had to find out. I mean, when I was growing up, my dad was a pastor. So, like, I also grew up in a very religious family. But, like, I have two older sisters, and we definitely had the book, like, What's Happening to My Body? So, like, I had lots of resources in my house to rely on about, you know, changes in your body and puberty. And also I had sisters to know what to expect about certain things. And I know we talked briefly about our respective experiences with sex education when we were talking about Never Been Kissed. So not wildly expansive, but like at least there was something. I was also really surprised that Carrie's like 16 and she's only just getting her period. I know that it's like not unusual for girls to get their period that late, but it is definitely later than is, I think, considered normal. What were some things that worked for you in this movie? For me, I think the main stuff that worked here was a lot of the coming of age stuff with Carrie. I really enjoyed seeing her journey, getting to know her and a lot of the consistent imagery around Carrie, like a lot of the filmmaking stuff they did with the consistent symbols and things that were appearing around her. Like 
blood being a constant throughout the whole thing, Jesus being a constant thing throughout the whole thing, all these symbols that kept showing up. I really like when she is in her house, everywhere she is in her house, you can see a cross or Jesus or something in every shot. Even when she's up in her room and she's looking in her mirror, out of the corner of her mirror, there's just like this stained glass portrait of Jesus, like staring back at her. And even after she like telekinesis cracks the mirror, it's still there staring at her. When she is forcefully shoved and locked in the closet, you got the creepy Jesus statue there. It's God, just that like, statue was so, yeah. so disturbing. Yeah. I really did like the distortion of the the face of Jesus in the broken mirror upstairs. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting narrative thing. And just how specific this movie seemed about... I was shocked that this came out of Stephen King, honestly. I don't know a ton about Stephen King, but he doesn't seem someone who would write a very authentic, relatable, specific coming-of-age story about a young girl. Like that like resonated and felt authentic. It was shocking to me that this came out of Stephen King. And I'm curious to read the book to see how much of that was the actors and the screenwriter and the director shaping what Stephen King had written or how like true to his book this is. Yeah, I haven't read the book myself, so I can't really speak to that at all. But I similarly would be interested in reading it and kind of comparing the two. And Carrie, for me, like I related to her a lot. I know I just sent you the video essay that kind of deconstructing a lot of horror movies and their queer subtext or queer readings. And Carrie was one of those movies. And I got a lot of that watching this. But with this movie, I definitely got the queer reading out of this. And it resonated very strongly with me. With Carrie being very religious and being told she was sinful by nature, in her case, because she's a woman and that's inherently sinful to her mother growing up queer being told you're inherently sinful just getting relentlessly bullied at school being trapped in a closet in her case physically being trapped in a closet the source of all this being her sexual awakening is when the start of like that real horror comes with all these confusing feelings confusing things happening to you her outlook on the world is being changed now as she's growing into adulthood and just like everything was sort of tying in really closely to my own story. I was like, Ooh, this makes me feel uncomfortable. Ooh, I really relate to that. I also thought it was pretty interesting that like, you could almost read Carrie as an X-Men in this movie, which was kind of fun. X-Men discovered her power when they like come of age. She's discovering her powers all of a sudden when she's coming of age. And like, I don't know. It's cool. X-Men is also a bit of a queer allegory. So you oh, can totally. overlay those two stories for sure. With respect to, sort of the the plot to embarrass Carrie at prom. One of the popular girls that has been taunting Carrie named Chris and her boyfriend, Billy, who's played by John Travolta. You did not tell me John Travolta was in this. I was shocked. I did not know. I forgot he was in here. I was like, oh my God. You didn't tell me that Kevin Bacon was in Friday the 13th. I also forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) But they make a plot to embarrass Carrie at prom by like, rigging the prom king and queen ballot so that she's guaranteed to win so they can dump all of this pig's blood on her. And as I understand, pig's blood is like pretty easy to obtain. You can just like buy it from a butcher because it's a a waste byproduct. Like you can use it for all kinds of things, but like I think it's pretty inexpensive to obtain. But what they actually end up doing is they break into 
like a pig slaughterhouse where there's like all of these pigs and they fucking kill a pig and drain it for its blood. And I just thought that was like really demonstrated how terrible they are as people because this act was so unnecessary to achieve their aims. And Billy like did it without any problem at all. Like they just didn't care so long as they were able to cause carry any amount of pain. So I just, I thought that was just a really good demonstration of the fact that they're just shitty fucking people. Yeah, that was a pretty gruesome scene. So one of the other popular girls in Carrie's gym class, her name is Sue. And after Carrie's experience with getting her period at school, they're getting talked to by their gym teacher who... They basically have only gotten a week of detention for what they did to her. But she's saying, uh, the gym teacher is saying, you know, what I would do is you guys would be expelled for three days and you would not be allowed to attend prom, which, of course, is like a big deal to everybody in the class. And she understands that, you know, hitting them where they live is really kind of the only way that they're going to understand the ramifications of what they've done. And so sort of to make reparations, Sue asks her boyfriend, Tommy, who's like, the quarterback he's like the most popular guy at school to take carrie to prom and when tommy asks carrie she is of course justifiably reluctant she's suspicious of his motivations and even the gym teacher when she finds out that he's done this she's like what's the catch like what's going on i was surprised because i didn't remember this since i saw this movie when i was like in grade 11 or 12 i think at a friend's house so it's been a bit of time since i've seen it but i forgot that like, she, her intentions were actually good. Like, she wasn't in on this whole other yeah. thing with Chris and Billy. So, yeah, I was just like, I'm also, you know, wary of her intentions. And then Tommy, you know, kind of being reluctant to ask her and then being so good to her as a date when they're actually at prom. It's kind of too bad what happens to them. But at the same time, I made a note that everybody in this movie gets exactly what they fucking deserve. So, <laughs> save for Carrie. Maybe touch on it later, but I, I was a little confused by the Sue's motivations and uh, Tommy's motivations in a way that for like might have been good for a while like ooh, I don't, I'm not sure if they're being honest about this or not but I wasn't sure I liked where it ended up in the end because I really didn't even know if Tommy's intentions were good I think by the end honestly I was very confused by that I, I really liked Sue as a character by the end though at first, she does seem just kind of like one of the mean girls, and then it does turn out that she really was trying to do this very earnestly to help Carrie, and she ends up being the lone survivor because of it, I suppose. So there's that. She really does seem to be the only person who actually understands like how shitty they've been to Carrie and like how traumatizing the experience that they made for her was. So... I can understand why, and I agree that, you know, like, I wasn't sure what their motivations were, and I was kind of questioning it right up to the last. But I think when they actually were at prom, like, Tommy's motivations were good. I think so. Uh, He was, like, very aware of, like, how anxious Carrie was. And even when they're dancing, and then, like, he kisses her kind of unexpectedly, that was, like, very clearly, to me anyway, not something that was planned. It was just like they were having a moment and he kisses her and like even when, you know, they get the ballots and she sees that they're on it and you know, he's like, Well, why don't we vote for us? When she's like, Who should we vote for? You know, just like kind of coaxing her to be like, You are allowed to champion yourself and like voting for yourself is not a bad thing because she's so like, Oh, we can't we can't vote for us. Like so he's doing a lot to kind of help her 
move past her insecurities. I really liked seeing Carrie come out of her shell throughout the whole movie. Where she starts, um, her hair, like, so in her face. She's always hunched over. She's trying to hide from the world, essentially. She is barely speaking. And then throughout the movie, as she comes into her own, starts to master her powers at the same time. She's really gaining control of herself. She puts her mother in her place in a great scene where she's like, no, I'm going to the prom and really stands up for herself for the first time. We see her trying on makeup, making her own dress, uh, putting her hair up more, speaking more. And it's just this gradual, wonderful transformation where she really comes into her own. And I thought it was really lovely. How funny is it that there was a book about fucking telekinesis in their school library? That's very convenient, but also like, I don't know, maybe it's not unlikely, but it seemed very unlikely, very convenient. I love some of the other titles that were like in the um, the card catalog as she was looking for things under Miracles. There were some other really good titles that were under there before she eventually finds the book she's looking for or that she settles on. I know we briefly touched on uh, her, but uh, for me, Mrs. Collins, the TE teacher, was MVP. Love Mrs. Collins. Love me a questionably lesbian subtexty PE teacher who's the champion and wonderful person in the movie. A trope that gets used quite a lot where it's like the nice lesbian PE teacher or it's the mean lesbian PE teacher. It's one of the two. But I loved her. She was so supportive. She really put those girls in their place. I love when she's like forcing them to do the, the uh, like running on the spot, doing gym and like for detention. And she's really championing Carrie in this movie and really is fighting for her in such a great way and a positive way. And it just made me wish I had someone like that in school that would champion for me like she did for Carrie, which is not something I sadly ever had in school. Yeah, I think I was in our last episode where I, or maybe it wasn't in the podcast at all, or I was talking about when I was being bullied in elementary school. I spent a lot of time in like the counselor's office and like they didn't really do much for me in terms of yeah. stopping what was going on. They weren't acting as a champion for me, but it, it was at least a place that I could go to have some respite and like talk about what was going on. Some kids don't even have that available to them. They also just had some great one-liners. You too, Chris, spit up that gum. Where will I put it, Mrs. Collins? You can choke on it for all I care. Just get it out of your mouth. <laughs> And even when Carrie gets pulled to the principal's office and the principal's calling her Cassie, 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 and she's like, it's Carrie. It's Carrie. It's like Cassie. It's like, ugh. I made a note that it's like, why is it that teachers in these kinds of movies seem unable to control their students yet are so incredibly abusive to them in equal terms? It's like they're so aggressively mean but at the same time, like, have no control over their students. Like, it's a weird dichotomy. I don't think she was aggressively mean. I don't think it, m- this note was necessarily specific yes, to Miss yes. Collins, like some of the other teachers as well. It's very hard to do or say anything to get a, a group of bratty teenage girls of that age to listen in any way. It's It's very, very difficult. They are... They're so in their their head and in their ways and in their group and their mind group think that like breaking through to like Chris in this case 
very clearly in this movie seem to be like an impossible task for Mrs. Collins. Like she could break through to Sue, but someone like Chris or some of Chris's minions, like you are not going to break through to these like people. Norma. Yeah. Is Norma the red hat girl? Yeah. Oh my God. The fact she wore that dumb red hat to prom pissed me off for some reason so much. Like, of course that girl's wearing her hat to prom. God. There's the scene where they're in the the beauty salon and her hat's like on top of the blow dryer while she's underneath it. It was so funny to me. The music in this movie fucking slaps, though. Like, holy shit. When they were at the prom, I was like, all of these songs are so good. And I believe that all of the songs in this movie were original songs written specifically for this movie as well. And they were great. I love them. I would definitely like put them on a playlist and listen to them all the time. I don't think I made any notes about them. They just kind of washed over me, honestly. I don't even really remember them. You should rewatch this movie <laughs> and refresh your memory. We'll get to it. Or at least just watch the prom scene we'll again. Get, we'll get to it. I'm not sure it's a movie I'll be rewatching. I also really liked like the very last scene where Sue is dreaming that she's visiting where Carrie's house used to be. Before all of this happens, Carrie gets home and her mom like tries to kill her. And she ends up using her uh, telekinesis to, like, pull the house down and it lights on fire because there's a hundred thousand candles burning when she gets home. And so the house burns down and both Carrie and her mother die, which is too bad for Carrie. It's because the Jesus statue sunk their house. Oh, my God. They zoom in on the Jesus statue as giant integral parts of the house start falling through that clearly weren't caused by the candles it's clearly Jesus is is killing Carrie for me to witch. It was very confusing, totally. Yeah, but Sue's having this dream where she's yes. going to visit where the house used to be and like lay flowers because it's also like kind of a grave site. And Carrie's arm, like presumably it's Carrie's arm, like shoots out of the ground. It's all bloody and like grabs her ankle, and she wakes up screaming. And her mom is trying. I think it's her mom actually touches her, and she misinterprets that in her dream as like being grabbed yeah. by deceased Carrie. But I think that was like the scariest part of the movie for me. The first time I ever saw it was like based on everything else. Like you said, it's like not too horror-y no, in really. a lot of other ways. But like that scene right at the end, you know, it's like kind of this calm thing, and like all of a sudden this arm just like shoots out and grabs you know i would probably also wake up screaming in a similar situation because it's it was definitely like a very good uh use of that kind of moment i mean until the prom this could have just been perks of being a wallflower but you're an x-man like (laughs) there was no horror until it in it until that point really maybe the pig scene but like I was not expecting that from Stephen King. Uh, I And it's the posters, and even the taglines, like you said, like the posters are carry in full of blood at the prom. The taglines are all about it being terror and horror. And then it was really like just a deep dive look at this girl's life, which was interesting. Speaking of that, like one thing that worked really well for me in this, similar to Friday the 13th, was the mom here. I thought the woman who played Carrie's mom was really on fire. Like, Pretty campy, I would say. Like, she was riding that line between playing, like, two over, maybe, of, like, this crazy religious zealot. But also, I've known people that remind me of this woman in a way that's uncomfortable, where it felt still somewhat grounded to me. And it was just, like, equal parts horrifying to watch and just, like, captivating every scene she's in. Even the scene where she goes over to Sue's mother... Uh, goes over to Sue's house to see Sue's mother and tries to sell her 
her Christian pamphlets and just the way she talks down to Sue's mom and like that first initial scene of meeting her, like you instantly get her religious fanaticism and like the kind of character she is. Mm-hmm. And the scene where Carrie leaves her prom and you just it, like goes into her mom, uh, close up on Carrie's mom as she goes, thou shall not suffer a witch to live. And we know some shit's going to come down later when Carrie comes home at that point. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. Well, not interesting. I thought it was good the way that, you know, before Carrie goes to prom, her mom is trying to tell her, you know, to change her mind and stay home. She just goes, they're going to laugh at you. And then, you know, the thing with the pig blood happens. Yeah. And I wasn't sure at first if she was, like, kind of hallucinating everybody, laughing at her being covered in pig's blood. Um, because her eyes kind of like do a weird thing. I think at some point it transitioned and people were actually laughing. Maybe not everybody, but sort of after like the initial shock wore off. Because the sound goes all uh, dead as we can only hear the swinging bucket and the dripping blood. Yeah. And everything else is silent. And you see Pat Girl pointing and laughing, but then everyone else in the crowd looks mortified, basically. And then it switches to Carrie seeing everyone laughing, including Mrs. Collins, which is clearly not happening. And then it does switch back almost. It feels like maybe people are laughing at that point. But I'm not sure if we're supposed to be still seeing that through Carrie's eyes. I'd have to rewatch it again. I'd like to Mm -hmm. think that not everyone is laughing at her, though. I think the whole point is supposed to be that Carrie's downfall is... The fact that she thinks everyone's going to be laughing at her and just her mother has like sunk her claws into Carrie so deep that Carrie can't see the world for what it is and that people might actually accept her. And that's the tragedy of the whole thing is that Carrie finally opens up and people do accept her. But then this happens and she snaps and it's just very tragic because we know that Sue has given her this chance and that Tommy seemingly is a nice guy and that Mrs. Collins is supporting her and she's starting to make more friends and, and it all is going up positively and it all comes crashing down in a flaming inferno. Well, what were some things in this movie that didn't work for you then? Uh, for me, kind of going back to Chris and Sue and motivations I wasn't too bothered by the fact that I wasn't 100% sure until the end if Sue was on Carrie's side or not, and never quite being sure about Tommy, because we don't really know where either of them are coming from, because we don't really have scenes of them by themselves talking about it. We have the one scene where Sue asks Tommy, will you do this thing for me? And then it kind of cuts away, and I'm never quite sure how much Tommy's doing this just because Sue asked him how much Tommy's actually likes Carrie or is is he starting to get invested in this and actually kind of likes her now as a friend or whatever. And I just was never quite sure on anyone's motivations other than Carrie's, especially Chris, who I think would have benefited from more than more reasoning for why she's targeting Carrie so fixatedly this whole movie when Carrie has not done a single thing to her in the entire movie to bring on any of this at all in any way. And I get that like teenage girls are just kind of shit sometimes and they'll be mean, but 
I thought it would make more sense for her to focus all her rage against Mrs. Collins, who's the reason all of this is happening to her, and none of it's because of Carrie at all. And it just seems kind of like you're missing the forest for the trees or whatever. Like, Carrie's not a threat to you in any way. And I wanted to know why she was so fixated on Carrie. Were they friends before? Is this a Regina George situation? where she invited her to her eighth grade birthday party, but she couldn't have a lesbian there. Like, what's the reason, basically? Yeah, I, that's fair. I mean, I definitely didn't really need anything for Chris because sometimes you're, like bullies don't really have a reason. She just really hated Carrie, and she wanted to Carrie do make to her, her suffer. Like, that seemed to kind of be the extent of it. it. Like, it seemed like she was going above and beyond and was so fixated on Carrie. She's constantly going, I hate Carrie White. And it's like, I would get it if Carrie White did something to you for you to be constantly bitching about Carrie White when she's not there. No one related to Carrie White's there. It's just you and your boyfriend. You can't stop talking about how much you hate Carrie White. And it's just, she was so fixated on her that it seemed to me like there was a reason we were missing. If she was just a mustache twirling villain, villainess or something, I guess that's fine. I don't know. I, I kind of wanted something there, personally. I just felt so bad for Carrie, because like, she's done nothing wrong. Yeah. For me, let's talk about the opening credits for oh, just a second. Okay. Let's there was talk like about that. <laughs> So, sure. the opening credits of the movie are in the girls' gym post-class. There's a lot of just, like, casual nudity as girls are in the showers and, like, getting dressed and just talking to each other. And I was like, well, like, the casual nudity throughout the opening credits was, like, not framed in, like, a sexual way. Like, it was not framed super male gazy, but it was, like, it went on for a weirdly long time. And I didn't really feel like it was kind of necessary at all for me. And I super didn't need, like, the weird close-up of, like, Carrie feeling herself up while she showered and, like, caressing her breasts and, like, her thighs and, like, all... It was, like, very weird. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't know if it was just, like, of the time or what, but it was just... It was weird. They were playing the Fox and the Hound soundtrack after over that, I swear. It was, like, this old-timey, I'm on a farm, and it's, like, very pastoral, like slow ambient music over top of this whole showering scene. I'm just like, this is jarring and weird. And I haven't seen this many naked women ever. <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> I was like, and I picked the, there was two versions on Amazon prime for me to pick from. One was 18 plus and one was like 14 plus or 16 plus or something. And I was like, I don't know the difference, but I guess this one might have more blood. I'll watch it. I'm like, Oh, Oh, what? Am I watching the right movie? Leanne, is it bad? What's happening? <laughs> What's what going on? Less titties, I guess. <laughs> like, I guess this is Sissy Spacek, so that must be the right movie. <laughs> it was super jarring. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It, it took half an hour for me to get into this movie, really, just because I was very confused at what I was watching. I'm like, is this another Stephen King 70s cocaine field movie? Because it sure feels like it right now. <laughs> is this the cocaine? I mean, the answer to that question is probably yeah. partly yes. I guess this might not have been peak Stephen King cocaine yet. We hadn't done to it yet. Where everyone's riding around in the back of a weird turtle and having sex with Beverly and then to gain their innocence or lose their innocence or whatever. Wow, that's a weird book. Cocaine's weird. 
the other thing for me in this movie was like I felt like some of the effects were pretty hacky, like at the prom scene where Carrie's controlling like the yeah. fire hose. But also, this movie's like almost forty years old, so like yeah. I'm not gonna fault them for that. It was a little jarring going from like Friday the Thirteenth to this, where in Friday the Thirteenth, I thought the filming of it and the effects all held up very well for me. Whereas in this movie, a lot of the effects and the filming style of it kind of were lost on me because they were clearly trying to do something here that was a little more ahead of its time, maybe a little more experimental in many ways. And a lot of that just didn't really hold up. Sadly, I agree that the, the prom scene, I also wrote down a lot of different points where the sound editing was really, really weird for me. Even the opening, having like the Fox and the Hound sack, the Fox and the Hound soundtrack play over top of the weird sexual shower scene. I have many ones down here. There was the weird scene where they were uh, Tommy and his friends were getting tuxes and they're arguing about wanting tuxes with ruffles. And then all of a sudden their voices just speed up to chipmunk speed for a few seconds and goes back for yeah. no reason. There was a weird ass like KK slider animal crossing music playing during their PE detention. That was like weirdly upbeat and jaunty. And it was like, didn't match this PE detention scene at all. There was just lots of weird sounds like, even when um, Chris and John Travolta's character, I forget his name, Billy, are like parked in a car and she's like giving Billy a BJ, and the whole time we're hearing her say, Billy, 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 like the whole time, but like it's clear that she's going down on him, and I'm just like, this is weird, and it's like 80 yard in. Yeah, I also thought so that there's was just very a lot strange. of like awkward sound editing choices for me that didn't hold up. With respect to the tuxedo uh, scene, I did kind of love the whole conversation with the one guy who was like against buying a tuxedo, and he says, "I don't have a tuxedo body," and his friends are like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And he ends up buying just like a T-shirt that has a tuxedo on it, and he's like, "Yeah, this works great." Yeah, that kind of segues into one thing I had an issue with, which similar to Friday the 13th, actually, there's a lot of scenes in this movie that aren't telling you something about a character or forwarding the plot in any way at all that I thought a lot of it could have been cut. A lot of the scenes that are focusing on the popular kids or other characters like those three kids getting their tuxedos that didn't serve any purpose. Like it didn't tell us anything about Tommy's motivations in regard to Carrie it just was three kids getting prom tuxes. And there's, there's a lot of scenes like that where I'm like, okay, but why? And I think we could have cut a lot of that. Cause I even had down 30 minutes into this movie and I'm watching and I'm looking down constantly at the time because I'm like, okay, I haven't really, not really much has happened. Carrie hasn't even really spoken yet in this movie. I don't really know much about her at this point. I'm really questioning if, like, is she just really on the spectrum? Because she's not speaking. The opening scene with the shower where she's, like, running around convulsing, like, barely able to speak, like, just covered, her hands covered in her own blood or from her period, and she's, like, spreading around people and just, like, can't physically speak. And I was very confused at first where the movie was kind of going from there, and it was about half an hour in before I really got sold on the movie. And I think it could have, similar to Friday the 13th, I probably could have cut a decent amount of this and fixed, it might help fix the pacing. 
Yeah, I mean, both of these movies are about an hour and a half. And I feel like of the two, Carrie does better with the pacing overall. But I don't disagree that there are certainly things that could be cut to uh, make it a little bit more cohesive. Watching all these movies for the podcast, the one thing I'm learning is, like, you can cut a lot. <laughs> like, you can cut a lot of these movies. <laughs> like, you really... You know, your scene has to serve a purpose or, like, why is it there kind of thing. Like, we learn that a lot in, in writing, too. Mm-hmm. Like, like why, why is this scene in here if it's not adding something? You know, a lot of scenes, I feel like it's also of the time, right? Like, movies of this era, a lot of the ones I've seen are paced fairly similarly to this, that they don't have a really strong three-act structure like we're used to. They don't have quick, snappy introductions that like really hook you into the plot right away with like a complex just thrown in there and we're going uh, they're usually slow burns at first and so some of that's just kind of expected and you're expected to give movies like this a little more time i think so that's probably a product of 2020 movies and how we're kind of used to that the only other thing i would mention is on, on the good stuff i i liked a lot of the small details in this movie we've talked about some of them with like the 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 imagery of like the Jesus symbols and all that kind of stuff. But even some of the writing I thought was pretty good in this, like when they're at prom and Tommy goes to the devil with false modesty and Carrie just looks up and goes the devil. And like just little echoing of all the little things that her mom has been her. And like the, the choice for the, like the lipstick color and her mom, like calling it like blood red and stuff. And, like, there was a lot of, like, little word choices and very purposeful things in this movie I picked up on that I really liked. But I feel like if I watched this again, I would definitely pick up on more little things like that. So where would you put this on our ketchup reading? Perfect as is. Could you use ketchup or douse it? Um, I think, again, this is probably going to fall in a could use ketchup for me. I I was pleasantly surprised Going in, honestly, I thought I wasn't going to like this pretty much at all. Based on what I knew about it, I just didn't think it was going to be for me. I really liked a lot of what was in here and the coming-of-age aspects of this, but a lot of the stuff surrounding that for me just didn't work. And I could see why someone would want to remake this movie. I don't know if the remakes are any good, probably not, but I could see the core of this story being updated really well and getting rid of a lot of the weird 70s stuff, because there's a lot of weird 70s stuff in here that just didn't work for me. Probably not a movie I'd like want to rewatch a bunch. Um, I would also say that it in the could use ketchup needs a little bit of work, but I think like it's a classic for a reason. You know, definitely dealing with like the horror of femininity and you know, the horror of living in a conservative family for some people, just the way that um, those things impact the other areas of our lives. That's it for us this episode. Join us again next time when we catch up on more movies with each other. Consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find our show. Your review may land you a shout out in a future episode. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Movie Ketchup Pod for each episode updates and other news.